Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So if you've watched any news over the past months, um, you're well aware of the horrors that are happening over in Ukraine. The death and destruction, the fears, the geopolitical moves that are happening between nations, fears of world wars, new alignments and allegiances. And it's scary. It's hard to watch. The hard thing is, is this is just one of many invasions and bloody revolutions that go on through the span of history. Even Ukraine itself has a long history of revolution and invasion. Once was a land that was owned by, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Sumerians or Chimerians, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. It was owned by them, the Scythians, the Samaritans, and then it came under rule of the Goths, and then it was under the rule for a while of the Huns in the east. At one point, it was tied to the Byzantine Empire. And there's a period of time in which it was under Viking rule. In more modern times, it was once under the Polish kingdom. It was also part of the Soviet Empire. And it's under threat now. No one's completely sure what Russia wants to do with it, but... There's a possibility that they want to put it back under Russia again. But Ukraine's not unique. I mean, most modern nations, if you go back through the history, is a history of invasion and bloody revolution. One power taking over and establishing a new power. Borders changing and moving. And the sad thing is, is if you look back through the history of most every nation with any takeover, with any removal of power and the change of power structures and systems, it always comes through violence, through bloodshed and through death. And as violent as it is, it doesn't necessarily mean that every revolution is a bad thing, nor even invasion at times might be justified. But it's a heavy, heavy thing to desire revolution. To want an external kingdom to invade in and overthrow 
the power structures that be. And what blows my mind is, especially as Anglicans, we at least pray for this once a week, at minimum. We regularly plead for a revolution, asking for an invasion into our established kingdoms. And we do this every time when we pray what Jesus asked us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the frequency of it, even if you're not a churchgoer, nor a Bible reader, or even a prayer, most people in America can recite the Lord's Prayer. And it's a good thing, because reciting it over and over shapes us how we think and how we pray. But it can be a dangerous thing, too, because that type of prayer, prayer for revolution, prayer for invasion, can be something that just rolls off our tongue like a simple platitude, something that you just kind of say before you get into the real requests. So I went to this Sunday, just look at that part of the Lord's Prayer. To look at this petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And note three things. The the nature of this revolution that we are praying for, the location of the revolution, and then finally, the violence that is tied to that invasion or revolution. So first, the nature of the revolution. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, it's interesting when you look at revolutions is they either can be viewed as a glorious event of liberation or a violent coup. Often it depends on who's telling the history. I mean, we are going to be celebrating in a few weeks a revolution that was very bloody. And we're celebrating it. But the thing is, is often when you look at this idea of revolution or invasion, how it's reflected upon, how it's understood, depends upon who has to lose and who has to gain through its accomplishment. Usually, those who are in power, those who, who are comfortable with the old system and the old structures and the old ways, those power brokers are not too fond of revolution. And would not speak of it as something glorious. And usually those who are downtrodden, oppressed, those who are not benefiting from the current systems, view the revolution as a glorious and great liberation. And it's the same idea with regard to this idea of the coming invasion of the kingdom of God in the first century. I mean, most of the Jews anticipated and longed for it. There is a long history of either being in exile or under occupation. They had a series of these puppet monarchs that just used and abused the people 
for their own benefit and gain. They longed and waited and hoped that God would finally invade and overthrow the current structures and systems that be. But not all Jews. Some despised the idea of the invasion of the kingdom of God. Families like Herod, the great, those who had become comfortable within the current systems and structures, those who had benefited from the Roman system, weren't so keen on the idea of it all being thrown, overthrown. And some were so sick of waiting for it that we know that there had been a series over hundreds of years of multiple attempts to bring this revolution about from within. One of the most famous happened at 70 AD. And because of that attempt to bring about God's revolution, the temple was destroyed. So this idea that Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, would not have been extremely shocking. But what made it so shocking was once one began to understand the entirety of what Jesus meant, what He would teach about the coming of the kingdom of God. If you look through Scripture, the majority of Jesus' ethical teachings, His parables, his proclamations were all centered on the coming of the kingdom of God. The very message of Jesus was summarized in the Gospels as him proclaiming the good news or the gospel or the euangelion of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And his proclamation of this coming kingdom did encompass some of what many in his audience had anticipated and longed for. That this coming of the kingdom of God was going to fulfill prophecies such as Daniel 2.44 in which it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God was a proclamation that God's kingdom was going to come, but it wasn't good news for everybody because it was bad news for every kingdom that already existed. They were going to be crushed. Everyone who sits in a high seat was going to be overthrown. But what was shocking to the Jews, they had anticipated and longed for this because they believed that this meant when the kingdom of God was established, Rome would be destroyed. But what was hard for them, what was shocking to them, was the realization through Jesus' teaching that overthrowing of all kingdoms included their own. That it was going to overthrow each and every one of their ideologies, agendas, the little kingdoms that they held dear, or their grand vision of a kingdom that they thought they were going to establish is part of the all kingdoms that Daniel prophesied about. Because the idea of the kingdom of God is the idea of God's perfect rule and it will manifest itself in every facet of reality. 
Jesus' depiction of the kingdom is not limited to socio or political, religious, spiritual, theological, or any other individual realm, but encompasses everything. Conquers all sin. Removes all that is tainted by man's rebellion. And it says that it will overthrow all that is in opposition to him, reconciling everything he created good to himself. And the challenge, though, within this is the idea of thy kingdom come equates to thy will be done. I think Jesus, in laying out this prayer, is qualifying what thy kingdom come means. It means nothing less than God's full and complete will being done. And to pray that and to ask that means that thy will be done equates to all of our particular wills being overthrown. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done is recognizing that our agendas, our little kingdoms, our plans and our wills, everything that we have built up for ourselves are at the mercy of God and many will likely be overthrown because God's ways are not our ways. See, the thing is, is we often can pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it's easy to pray and it's non-threatening whenever we assume that thy kingdom come equates to my kingdom come. That somehow God's vision and God's plan that his kingdom being established is going to align with what we picture in our mind. That somehow God's will always aligns with my will. When we have a picture of a God that is like a great butler in the sky or a hype man like, or a superhero from a Marvel movie that shows up and helps us establish our agenda because clearly He's always going to be on our side. And His kingdom is always going to look like our ideologies and kingdoms. And so we can pray this whenever we assume thy kingdom come means God come so that you can correct all these other people and establish what I envision to be the kingdom of heaven. It's scary when we realize that that vision that we have is going to be overthrown just like everything else. Because God's kingdom come is God's will be done. To pray this prayer is to say all of the systems and allegiances I have committed to and my own desires and aspirations are subject to your kingdom and your will. It's praying that God would invade our reality and in so doing spark a revolution that might overthrow things that I hold dear, might usurp my own agenda from my life, that might upend all I have devoted myself to up to this point. The language of the kingdom is language of absolute rule and dominion where the monarch has absolute authority and reign. And it's hard for most people. It's hard for all people. As fallen individuals, our initial fall is we didn't want him to be the God and monarch 
he is. We wanted to be our own gods. But it's really hard for us who have grown up in a democratic republic. Fourth of July is celebrating the fact that we don't like monarchs. <laughs> and it's dangerous whenever you speak ill of that and speak positively of monarchy as an Anglican because it's still suspect. But the thing is, is at the end of the day, that, that a democratic republic might be the best system within our fallen world. But after all is said and done, we're not Americans, we're not Democrat Republicans, we're not libertarians, or democratic socialists, or whatever system we're looking at governmentally. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are monarchs as Christians. Monarchists. And we plead every day, or at least every Sunday, that the true king would invade our current kingdoms and establish his reign on earth as it is in heaven. So that is the nature of the revolution. Quickly, the location of the revolution. It says, on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that his kingdom would come on earth is a bit more shocking in our time than it was for Jesus' time. At least the on earth part. For the first century Jew, the expectation was that the coming of the kingdom of God had earthly socio-political ramifications. It meant the overthrow of Rome and the removal of the corrupt Herodian dynasty. But for them, is the as in heaven thing. Because they didn't get the global scope of what the kingdom of God encompassed. For us, it's the flip. We focus on the as-in-heaven part, often thinking of the kingdom of God as, as synonymous with heaven. Or the kingdom of God being a concept. Here it often said that you know, the kingdom of God is found within your heart. Go back and read Daniel talking about the kingdom of God. Or Isaiah if that's happening in your heart, it's weird. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we often talk about this idea, this kind of flippant use of saying we're building the kingdom of God. And a lot of times that language is usually used by, by preachers and pastors who have a pet agenda that they want to make sure that people finance and fund. And then they say, building for the kingdom of God. And Yeah, that's not what Daniel was talking about. But see, I think we miss this and we, 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 we kind of miss the fullness of the location and the reality of what the kingdom of God encompasses because we have a misunderstanding of the idea of heaven and earth misunderstanding that is born out of Western, a philosophical lineage that goes back longer than the gospel itself. See, heaven is not a location, but it's the realm of God's full presence and rule, untainted by the fall. I love um, St. Augustine for many reasons, but one of the things is I really, really like sarcastic people. Um, it's just, it's like my, my favorite form of humor. And St. Augustine was super sarcastic. 
and really cutting. Um, I really am excited to meet him. But just for a short period of time, like I don't want to get into a deep conversation with him, and I definitely don't want to argue with him. I just kind of want to just engage him a little bit. But St. Augustine, whenever he was, he was responding to somebody who was speaking of heaven as a location up in the sky, Augustine responded with a few questions. And he said, now if heaven is actually a location in the sky, does that mean that tall men are more holy or closer to God than short men? Now, if I pray on a mountain, does that mean that I'm closer to God and He hears me more than if I am in a valley? Are birds closer to God than lizards? And he's speaking sarcastically because the reality is is that we use language of up there. or and We use those type of languages because we don't have any other way of doing it. But the, the reality of God's full presence is the reality that we know of as heaven. But we see in the Scriptures that this, this full presence of God, that there's a veil separating heaven from earth. It's depicted in the Holy of Holies within the temple. But also, its tearing of that veil was significant in showing the work of Christ on the cross and what it was accomplishing. And our understanding of earth is to understand that at the very beginning when it was created, there was originally no veil. It says that God dwelt with man and creation was good. But the fall created division, separating heaven and earth. The full presence and rule of God, which is heaven, and the dwelling place of man, which is earth. But also we see in the end that Satan has no power to destroy anything that God created good. It wasn't that Satan led people to rebel and then God said, well, that stinks. I'm going to have to scrap that project, but we'll try to rescue a few souls along the way. No, in Revelation, what do we see? We see the establishment of the kingdom of God and it is depicted by the reuniting of heaven and earth. That the dwelling place of God will be with man. So the idea of the kingdom of God is as grand as heaven itself. It is greater than the cosmos beyond our comprehension and yet also located right here within God's creation. It's not limited to particular global, social, cultural, political, economic issues that we face today, but also it will encompass all of those things. Because the location of the invasion of the kingdom of God is earth, but the scope of that invasion is as grand as heaven itself. And finally, the violence that comes with a revolution. See, the thing is, when revolution or invasion comes, the systems, the powers that are established will always respond with violence in order to maintain the power that they have. And often in a revolution or an invasion, those who come in and take power will repay those who opposed their revolution with judgment. 
There's violence defending the power that one's had and might be losing. And then there's violence to establish the new power by killing those who fought against it. And every Sunday, we pray for a revolution that carries the exact same reality. The difference is that the frantic and violent attempt to maintain power found in all of fallen humanity was manifest in the fact that we took God's Messiah. The very presence of our true monarch and king and we crucified him. In an attempt to hold on to our God-like position that we've given to ourselves. To maintain our prized systems and structures that we hold dearly to. Our autonomy. Those things were threatened. And so we killed him. Then in his crucifixion, we also see that the violence that should be given to those who oppose the revolution was not placed on us. But instead, that too was placed on him. That we have the violence that we find over and over and over again. This cyclical cycle happening once and finally in the man Jesus. We killed him to try to maintain our power. And the wrath that should be ours was then placed on him as well. See, the revolution of God's kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven was not without violence, bloodshed, and death. But because of God's grace, the bloodshed and death was assumed by Him through His Son so that we can pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven with confidence and without any fear that even though our wills and the kingdoms we have created might fall, we will not be destroyed with them. The breaking in of God's kingdom and the overthrowing of all established power structures, the great revolution that will overthrow all nations and kingdoms, it will be bloody. Or better yet, it was bloody. And it will destroy all realities all of us hold dear. And like any invasion or revolution, it will face fierce opposition, but the violence that is tied to this final revolution of cosmic proportions has been assumed by God Himself through His Son hanging on the cross, taking on our counterattack to maintain our power as well as God the Father's justified wrath on all of our attempt to usurp His throne. So when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we ought to do so knowing that prayer is a prayer that might overthrow many of the systems, structures, nations, and ideals we hold dear, and will also likely challenge many of our own desires and longings. Yet nevertheless, we pray it knowing we are praying to the sovereign of all creation, the one that is beyond all comprehension, but also the one we now call Father. 
one whose will and kingdom will not submit to my little kingdoms and desires, but also loves us and cares for us as a perfect and loving father, one who by radical unwarranted grace shown to us through his son will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and in so doing will make us co-heirs with Christ of his glorious eternal kingdom. And so as our liturgy, which is drawn from some of the most ancient liturgical expressions, it leads us each Sunday, we can stand and have crazy boldness. We can be reckless and audacious enough to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and Son, and Holy Spirit. They took your life, they could not take your.